0: Well, thank you everyone for being here today. Um, I'm Emily Linneman, I'm the Executive Director of UACs, and it's really nice to be here with the lifetime some of the Lifetime Achievement Award winners that UACs has awarded the prize to over the years. And we have Emil Kirchner from the University of Essex, Bridget Laffan from the EUI, and Geoffrey Edwards from the University of Cambridge. So, first of all, just to get started, it would be great to hear from each of you when you joined UACs, and what, what prompted you to do that in the first place?
1: I became a member in 1980, and um, what prompted me was basically trying to meet other people who were in the field European studies, I thought it was a good opportunity. In, in those days I was still young, and uh, seeking cohorts uh, of a similar interest uh, was what motivated me. Thank you.
2: I joined in either 1980 or 81. I was a very young scholar at the time, based at an Irish university. Very few people on the island of Ireland working on the EU at the time. And I knew that I had to get off the island to meet people <laughs> who worked on the EU. Uh, and so, in a way, the two different, UASIS-1 and ECPR, were really my training as an academic. That was the, it it really Hmm. helped me transform myself from an early career scholar into a a reasonable scholar. (laughs) Uh, And UASIS was we must remember also in the late 70s early 80s that academia was not that internationalized mm-hmm. political science wasn't as internationalized as it is now and so these were the opportunities that you met colleagues like-minded people working on the same working on the same things and for me it was absolutely central to my development as a scholar i
3: joined in 1975 uh, having Done uh, european Union European community issues in the Foreign Office immediately before, so it seemed logical to 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 continue when I left um, and I left and I joined the Federal Trust for Education and research and uACs rented a single room from the Federal <laughs> Trust in central London at that point um, and so I immediately went on to the committee as an ex officio member since I was a, I, I was a rent holder as it were. Um, and at that point, it, it, we all crammed into this very small room whenever the committee
0: met. Yes, i have sort of seen all that in the minutes and um, how we used to. Yeah, it's really interesting the way in which we used to kind of obviously have to team up with people in order to um, be able to have an, an, an office, even an office space. Yep. So things have changed, I think. Um, over the course of your careers, what have you sort of what would you identify as the major changes and shifts in the discipline of European studies?
1: Well, if I go back, I think there was a lot of theory when I started out. I myself did functionalism, near functionalism. I think over a period of about 35 years, if I reflect back, uh, theory has become less dominant and it's more event-driven. You have the refugee crisis, the euro crisis, Many such events, uh, which now seem to sort of dominate the agenda much more. But uh, on the other hand, we have become more comparative. So, you know, we have something to offer in terms of uh, in other disciplines. And the same, looking externally, international relations have become sort of more of a focus. So from a more narrow-driven integration theory, per se, We have expanded uh, quite a lot uh, over those years and uh, I think it's been a good thing on the whole.
2: I I would agree with that. We were schooled in the greats, Haas, Hoffman, Lindbergh (laughs) and Scheingold, uh, all of those uh, early theories of European integration. Uh, And there's always been a dialectic relationship between uh, uh, developments within the EU and scholarship (coughs) on the EU. Mm -hmm. And one of the other characteristics of the those of us who were involved at a very early stage, is that we knew an awful lot about what was happening in the EU. At the time, it was possible to know a lot about lots of policy areas, institutions. But as the EU developed and became a more complex polity and economic space, then the capacity to, 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 in a sense, have a grasp of everything that was happening in the EU declined. So what we saw was a differentiation in scholarship, I think, with pe- much more specialization. Mm-hmm. So people became specialists in different aspects yeah. of integration. Uh, there were various turns, like the comparative politics turn, the governance turn, the identity turn, the constructivist mm-hmm. turn, and all of that was really important. But one of the things that it one of the downsides, I think was as Anil said, it was a then became s- somewhat events driven and we forgot some of the larger issues yeah. of European yeah. integration, mm-hmm. the macro the big macro yeah. questions of the nature of the polity that was that was mm-hmm. developing so there's been enormous change
3: I'm not so sure I'd agree with that last point there I. Of course, there's been huge change. And we've, it's certainly true that the, 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 the discipline, if we want to call it a discipline, has expanded as, as the competences of the European Union have, have expanded, necessarily. And I think it, it is still the case that, that, that the political scientists dominate and we lack economists, we lack lawyers, and so on in, in, in the right numbers, sociologists. And I, that was mentioned at, at the conference. but. One one of the things I think has been so so interesting in terms of that widening of of of, of interest and, and preoccupation. It does mean it has also meant specialization. So it does mean that we've been widening and deepening <laughs> at at the same time. Um which I think has been all, all to the good. But I don't think we've necessarily lost sight of, of some of the bigger issues. I mean we were you know, we've had two or three uh panel discussions even at this conference on the bigger issues whether, whether it's the the particular issues of migration or, or 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 the euro crisis but it it's been set within a context of integration disintegration it's been set within a context which has also a, a, a strong theoretical uh, bias and i think one of the interesting things about, about theoretical development is that we've given up yes the grand theories but we now seem to have such t- huge variety of different mid-range theories, which I think is particularly interesting. um, Because when you think in terms of international relations, for example, it's nearly always been the case that the the Brits and other Europeans have, have been off to America to learn what the latest theoretical position is, whereas on European issues... Okay, so we, we had trouble becoming recognized as a particular discipline rather than just an offshoot or something. But I think now we offer, the Europeans offer, the Americans, some innovative and interesting new ideas about theory, which, you know, is, is all to the good, I reckon.
2: Can I just say that when I said we'd lost sight of the big questions, I think they're back on the table because of the crises mm. of the last 10 years. But before then... One could read paper after paper that one learned a lot yeah, about yeah, the minutiae so, yeah, of particular yeah, decision routes,
1: very descriptive.
2: policy, but not the bigger question. But in a way, crisis, crises have forced yeah. the big yeah. questions. So you're absolute, I mean, we're not, we're, we don't disagree. I think that the big questions are now back on the table. And in a way the study of the EU both contributes to the development of social science and is now mainstream <coughs> in the social sciences. Yeah.
1: I don't know whether you want to sort of add the major challenges I think. One was and still is uh, intriguing us interdisciplinarity. Mm-hmm. We started out with this great sort of concept, you know, we European studies because we bring in the different disciplines economists, lawyers and so on, interdisciplinary. And it's been narrated. And it's been hounding us in many ways. We started out, I mean, Mm. I remember my own experience at Essex. Uh, We had six uh, departments at one stage coming together. And then the research assessment exercise basically blew a big hole into that. Back to your department, it it was. And so, so it is still an enormous challenge. And uh, when you go to the Chamonix Action Program, you know, they still emphasize interdisciplinarity in the projects, in the teaching, and so on. But it is a huge challenge, and in my opinion, rather than having succeeded, we are we're actually having, you know, in a regressive way, gone the opposite mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. It's regrettable, but um, you know, it's just one of those things. In a quite sort of adventurous way, we started out. Yes, you know, in the we have something to offer European studies which others do not do. But it remains to be a challenge.
0: I mean, I think um, <clears throat> the the new plans for, say, REF, which I think has become REF 2021, yeah. they mm. do mention interdisciplinarity, yeah. but I'm not sure they're really providing a solution on how they're actually going to assess exactly. interdisciplinary research within no. the kind of framework that's currently mm. set up. Mm. Do you think um, UACs has a role to play in helping to kind of Improve interdisciplinarity and and um, improve. If, if it needs to be improved, if you want to say that that's a, a, a good or a bad thing, or whether it's just that it's a, a well, concept I, that needs revisiting.
3: But I think I think US has always been faced with the problem and has always been trying to overcome it. Mm. Uh, whether it was in the nineteen seventies trying to get more economists, I think when we when when, when we appointed. Peter Robson as uh, editor of JCMS. You know, the idea was to get an mm. economist to, to try and bring fellow mm. economists in. And we've never had quite so much trouble with the lawyers. Alan Dashwood was there from the beginning and so on. So lawyers have not been such a problem. But it has been the economists who, for their own reasons, mm, have, have been drawn away from anything, as far as anything practical, um, in, 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 into number crunching and so on, rather than mm. anything else. And I'm, I'm not sure UAC's or anybody else in political <coughs> science has the problem has the ability to overcome.
2: Uh, uh, economics as a discipline, it's it's one of the few disciplines in the social sciences that ha- has a high level of confidence in what it does and how it operates. Misguided. Uh, and uh, economists tend to. You can go to any economics department in the world, and they all. Behave the same Mm. way. They know what the five top journals are, and Mm -hmm. that's what they do. And uh, they're very theoretical. I think one of the things that the crisis, particularly the financial crisis, the global and not just the European, has done is it's brought political economy Mm -hmm. back into fashion. Mm -hmm. And if one can't, in a sense, one if there isn't, it it isn't possible to co-opt the theoretical economists. Then I think economic historians and political economists. Is where we might, there might be some leverage.
1: I think via business schools
2: and so on. I yes, and that. via some of the best economics is being done in business schools today.
1: Yeah, and it is still so reflected. You look at the Journal of Common Market Studies, you look at the Journal of European Integration, the contributions by economists is very small. Because, as stated, they have their number one, number two, number three economists' journals, they want to be seen in their. And it's sort of, you know, they don't want to waste their time literally publishing something somewhere, which they know they don't get the recognition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's opportunity costs as they call it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked about the the discipline and how that's changed, um, and how definitions or understandings of interdisciplinarity have, have shifted. What about academia as a whole, so the academic profession, how do you feel that's changed over your time as a member of UAC
3: I mean I think one just just one because I'm not sure I, I can answer the, the, the bigger question, but one, one of the things that I, I find really interesting is the way in which especially in European studies in its relation to the academy and in relation to policy, where we we really have had trouble all, throughout our, our history in a sense. Um, that f- at, at the outset we were always considered to be so pro-European, we were always suspect. Um, that, that <coughs> fell perhaps into abeyance once, once the UK became a member and, and, and so on. But we were always, in a sense, suspect, uh, f- from international relations or political theories and so on as being uh, perhaps a bit too policy oriented, perhaps forgetting some of the, some of the, some of the bigger issues and so on. Um, and that has had real problems simply because, after all, we did have something to offer policy. Um, and there's a structural problem insofar as policymakers always wanted to talk to us. it has been terribly easy uh, to talk to officials, whether in national capitals or, or, or especially in Brussels. So we've always had this close relation with practitioners, which to, 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 to some of the more uh, recherche international relations scholars has always been... A problematic for us. I think, I think that problem of us being fairly close to the practitioners has, has, has meant us, has led us to be suspect in the eyes of some, some of the other disciplines. I think that has now changed with the REF insofar as we're all now constructing these little relevant narratives. Um, impact study. Impact, impact yeah. studies. Um, so perhaps the circle has come round and we're less suspect, but we're actually still involved with policy.
1: I think in terms of, um, the two ways we are looking at that. We have made a tremendous contribution to academia when you look at the number of journals which mm. have been created, the number of books which have come on the market. I mean, yeah, that's a huge contribution. Mm. To a kind of, um, Secondly, we have opened also something called comparative regionalism, you know, which, which the science hasn't done, IR hasn't done, and that I think is actually in many ways the future, this comparative regionalism where we really open up uh, in many ways and, and learn from you know, what is happening in Asia, in Latin America, as well as, you know, they learn from us from the European experience. And I think this has been delightful in many ways, but a huge contribution to academia. So we should be proud of ourselves in some ways as to, you know, the contributions we have made uh, Yes, there are those niggling uh, questions about, uh, you know, um, in terms of REF and, and so on. You know, it's always, when you compare them in the discipline, you know, well, where have you published, where, where is the Journal of Common Market Studies ranked, or where is uh, the Science Review ranked, and so on. Yeah, I mean, there are differences. But, you know, it's only one way of looking at it, the other ways.
2: I, w- I would say I've observed two big sh- shifts in academia over my career, not, not, not just in European studies. One is the internationalization of our universities. That hmm. uh, academic markets, particularly the UK academic market, but not only, are much more open than they were. When we started, most of the departments were almost mono, cultural mononational, whereas now uh, there's been a dramatic change and shift in that. And I think European studies attracts a multinational, Mm -hmm. multicultural group of scholars precisely because of what we're working on. And then the other uh, quite different dynamic has been uh, when I joined as a young scholar, the department would tell me, what its expectations were of me in terms of teaching, but it really didn't bother me much after that. Mm. I I got, you know, you developed your course outline, you delivered your lectures, you assessed your students, and you did your own work, and you went to departmental meetings, but it was all very calm and collegiate, whereas over time, Driven by increasing student numbers, more centralization within universities, academic life has changed and <clears throat> much less, it's much, much less self-regulation and much more top-down regulation than when I started out. <clears throat> uh, and the other thing I've observed is when I was a very young scholar, our university still had what we would call in Ireland characters. You know, Professors of history who spent the afternoon in the pub regaling their students with all sorts of stories. Universities don't have room for these people anymore.
1: (laughs) I think there's one other aspect uh, worth mentioning, and that is looking a little bit at the outside. The Chamonix Action Programme has done really a substantial uh, help to us as European Studies uh, yes. lectures and, and researchers. <coughs> uh, the funding alone mm-hmm. is in many ways, yeah. uh, you know, we had chairs, we had uh, modules, and uh, then later on, centres, and now projects and networks, and so on. It's a huge mm. contribution. Secondly, the Erasmus program, we should not forget. I mean, again, we mm. profited mm-hmm. from that. The exchanges which have taken course, place, and yeah. so on, we plugged into... Uh, a kind of framework which, you know, if we had to create that on our own, that would have been extremely yeah. difficult. Yeah. So I think we should give uh, credit there too, to where we got help from.
2: Yes. All of
3: which Brexit raises questions. Ah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I mean, in terms of funding, in terms of teaching in ter- mm. and teachers, Horrendous. and in terms of students. Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm. So I wanted to pick up on, Bridget, on what you were saying about internationalisation of higher education generally, um, and I just wondered what your thoughts were, particularly someone who hasn't worked in UK academia, but how UASIS has um, affected academics, universities outside of the UK?
2: Well, I, I mean, it's very clear to me that UASIS is, a uh, user in the US at one time may have been larger and mm. may have attracted a larger number of people to its biannual conference. But for the certainly the last Ten years, I, I think UASIS is the largest European Studies Association in the world. Certainly, the largest in Europe, but I think in the world. And so, it is hugely important to scholars, not just within UK academia but European mm-hmm. academia. You tend not to get Americans travelling to Europe for conferences that much, but certainly, it's a it's a it's a multi-European uh, association now. Uh, And that's been a very important, uh, it's been very important in terms of what it does for young scholars, Mm. not just in providing the opportunities to deliver the first and early paper, but all of the other things it does for Mm. for young scholars. So I would say, um, I I was, Ireland had a very small association of European studies that I was secretary of for several years, but we were tiny. So without UASIS, we'd have been locked into this tiny, tiny academic community. So I think it's been hugely important, not just in the UK context, mm. which is obviously it's, its role, but much more widely in European terms.
3: Just, uh, I think I just uh, em- em- emphasise the, the point about young scholars, uh, because I think that's been a critical role for, for, for UASIS. But I think also the, the way in which it's not just giving papers at conference, at the, the, the annual conference, but but the the, the funding of smaller conferences yes. and research mm. groups.
0: Mm. So, going forwards, we've obviously mentioned one of the particular challenges mm. that's coming down the road for European Studies. Um, but what do you see as the major developments in European Studies in the next few years? And you know, you may want to bring into that Mm. Brexit and how that might affect Mm -hmm.
1: the
0: discipline. Well, I think
1: youth is really, has to be the focus. Mm. If we do not now recruit sufficiently, and there are dangers because Brexit uh, being one, we have de-emphasizing European studies now for some time, language programs have gone down, if we lose sight of that, I think then the future looks indeed very bleak. So, But effort, efforts can be made to reach out and help bringing those young scholars or, or PhD students, MA students even to some extent, into the fold, I think the more important that will become. So that's certainly one development, and Brexit is... is um, the second is w- what we referred to already, the need to engage more in comparative regionalism. So that you know, we as UAS go out and sort of say, okay, USA in America, what are they doing? Arbeitsgrance, uh, Germany, but also looking at Asia, it's becoming now more and more uh, a, a focus uh, there, uh, enterprising in terms of the conferences and so on. So comparative regionalism, I think, you know, we have to show the young scholars it's not just Europe, it's part of this drive to sort of say, right this global environment, uh, whether it's climate change, so we can connect. So I think the two are linked in many ways, looking at youth, trying to sort of bring them in, and offering them sort of more um, scope in terms of what can be done, comparative regionalism. That's not to say that, you know, IR, again, should not be excluded either, but I think we need to sort of be thinking a little bit more sort of in terms of how can we move on to the good things we have done in the past and, you know, complement them with some new ideas.
2: Uh, I would say, firstly, in in substantive terms, what are the sorts of areas we need to focus on to understand and get a better grasp of what's happening? Uh, I would say we know a lot about uh, systems of multi-level governance, the actor constellations, the policies. We know a lot less about multi-level <coughs> politics and the problems therein. And so I would say we need to marry multi-level governance and multi-level. Uh, politics which requires those who work on elections public opinion to work with people who work more on policy processes so I think that's there that's disaggregated at the moment and and it's problematic I fully agree on the comparative regionalism uh, the role of the EU in the world a perennial area of research uh, extremely important and the relationship between European integration interdependence and wider processes globalisation. Mm. So I would say there's a whole in, in other words, there are a lot of substantive issues that are analytically challenging, theoretically challenging and empirically challenging out there. So uh, there's no shortage of there's <laughs> no shortage yeah. of substantive issues. Mm. Then on the on on, on the supply side or, or what Brexit may mean, I think we simply don't know yet. I would envisage that the UK will ask and to continue to be part of Horizon 2020, the Monet programmes and all of that, and will pay a fee for that, and therefore uh, the United Kingdom universities will continue to be part. But there's something about not being a member state that plays into the dynamic. In terms of... I was very struck in... uh, I'm part of a consortium at the moment that's developing a bid for uh, Horizon 2020. We're not the coordinators. But I was very struck by uh, someone saying, well, we can have one UK partner, but certainly not two. In other words, they're they're factoring in the shift in the UK. So I think that there will be costs, unfortunately, and consequences, although I don't envisage a situation where... it. UK universities will be completely outside these programmes. That's not what I envisage, but whereas now the UK is a leader, it will forego that leadership uh, position, uh, and that is detrimental to higher education in the UK, but also to Europe, because the the UK has an extremely strong and vibrant higher education system, uh, and. There's no reason for it to marginalise itself uh, within the EU, but unfortunately the macro-political dynamics are much greater. I think that paradoxically the European question will bedevil the United Kingdom following Brexit. And whereas this was a relatively low-salient issue in politics prior to the Bloomberg speech in 2013, yes, it bothered some people... um, but but it really wasn't seen as a major issue by most people. I will predict, regardless of how Brexit pans out, in other words, what form of Brexit, uh, that will that it will the European question will bedevil the United Kingdom for decades ahead. And I remind everyone. The of. The role of the Irish question mm-hmm. in British politics in the 19th century and 20th century, and the Irish question was rarely off the agenda. It brought governments down. It it had a major influence on uh, parliamentary processes in the United Kingdom. It was a major constitutional issue, and it was never resolved. Until, paradoxically, I would say 2011, when the Queen visited uh, Dublin or Ireland. The irony is that Brexit has destabilised that normalisation in relation to Ireland, but that's not the point I want to make. Uh, the point I want to make is that the European question is now core on the, on the UK agenda, political agenda. It is the big issue, and I it will not be resolved by Brexit.
3: No, absolutely not. Just on the on the on the Brexit issue, talked about research. I mean I hope in, in, in the bargain that, that, that we may be able to strike in terms of remaining within the research area that, that somehow we can also uh, manage to, 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 to keep European students as domestic students rather than foreign students. I mean I've always been amazed why we get so many European students yes. now when we charge them quite so much and they they can be pretty much free of fees at home. If they now become International students, this this is going to have a terrible effect. But the other thing that I think about Brexit is is, is is not the research and not the students, it's the actual people who are teaching. And I think the degree of uncertainty, the incompetence of the Home Office, the lack of credibility that the Home Office has got in terms of sending letters off to people, mm. absolutely appalling. I mean, how anybody could have any trust in the British government, some, some, sometimes amazes me. Um, because I think that degree of uncertainty and the unpredictability of, 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 of tenure and so on is, is, is an appalling issue.
0: Do you think UACs um, as a membership organisation can do anything to support its members, to mitigate some of these challenges? Um, do you think it should have a role in this this sort of thing?
3: I mean, as UACs is about to establish the Uh, A centre in Brussels to become become a a European uh, body, so that you can still receive funding and so on. Um, And that that might be one answer. But uh, I mean, I think the point the point that's been made earlier: if 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 we're one of the or the largest uh, group of of of, uh, European studies then uh, the network is likely to continue. After all, Brexit is not the priority of anybody else in Europe. Now, there are an awful lot of other issues and problems that still will still need to be studied and researched and so on. And we can make a contribution, And, and as, as Bridget said, I think everybody would hope that we could still make a contribution to that.
2: I would say that the uh, has got to because it's focused on on the study of Europe and bringing together people who work on Europe it has a fundamental role to play in in the next phase because Europe will still be an issue for the united kingdom but also the dynamic of integration there are all those issues and given that there's such a con- concentration of scholars uh, i do think that uh, UK universities will become less attractive to continental Europeans.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, that's unfortunate because, on, even though Brexit is, you know, we're not leaving Europe as the strapline, well, that's not how it feels to everyone else. <laughs> it's mm. it's seen as leaving Europe. But I think domestically, there's also a, a very important role to play, educational role to play because one of the most striking things about the referendum campaign and even now is the lack of basic knowledge of how the EU works Mm -hmm. and we know that if people don't know and don't understand the political system there are issues of trust and buy in and I'm very struck by people who should know,
3: (laughs) don't know but who didn't want to know, that was the really sad thing
1: about Mm -hmm.
2: the campaign and uh, so I think the UASIS also has a very important educational role and public information role to play in the future. Uh, because it's not that I expect everyone walking the streets to understand uh, how the EU operates, because if you ask them how the Polish parliament operates, if we went out and did a uh, Vox Pop now, they wouldn't. But it's that they know enough to feel comfortable. Mm. Uh, whereas clearly that was not the case in relation to the EU uh, during the campaign. And I, I think, of course, the problem the UK faces uh, with the press on this issue is very serious because it's 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 misinformation, mm-hmm. it's deliberate misinformation. Mm-hmm. So I think UASIS in a sense, becomes more rather than less necessary, mm. but obviously will have to work in a more challenging environment.
1: Yeah, I agree with all what has been said really, what uh, can or should be done. I think there might be two other areas. Uh, We have the Academy of Social Sciences in this country and one of their really big objectives is to fight cuts, educational cuts. Mm to support tribes like European Studies, I would assume. To link with them, um, I have a for example, now the chair of, of that uh, Academy of Social Sciences. Um, I'm a fellow of that, so that's why I know what, what is going on and the campaigns they uh, introduce, which is really quite far-reaching. They even publish pamphlets on the topic and so on. So I think you should perhaps uh, link with them. And the second is, the only really European institution is the European Parliament I can sort of see become more um, representative or or seek contacts with MEPs. I know they will not be British anymore, but otherwise uh, use perhaps some of your Colleagues, Germany, France, and so on, do lobby on behalf uh, and so on, you know, it, because overall it is still in the interest of the European Parliament to, uh, you know, uh, promote our cause, so to speak. So, those would be the two areas I can see some scope.
0: Okay. Well, thank you all very much for sharing your thoughts, and hopefully, it's given. You some food for thought for the next 50 years as well. <laughs> <laughs> that would be thank it. Thank, thank you very that would much. Be- <laughs> <laughs> We're
1: knocking on the door in 50 years. <laughs>